0: passage today. Ron's going to actually preach from the book of Mark, but he wanted me to read the parallel passage to it that's in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. The word of the Lord reads like this. When Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly tormented by a demon. Yet he did not say a word to her. So his disciples approached him and urged him, Send her away because she cries out after us. He replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came, knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He answered, It isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, that even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus replied to her, woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was cured. Amen. Amen.
1: Well, we will be in Mark chapter 7, beginning with the 24th verse, and the title of the sermon is "Tests." and we're going to talk about that a little bit, but, uh, you know, if there was one statement that Jesus makes that is that I look at and I go, I don't think I would have said that. Like, it's offensive. I mean, on the exterior, as you read straight up, I mean, I don't know a good way to say it other than it's just offensive, you know what I mean? And Jesus certainly has offended people up up to this point, and He's made people feel uncomfortable, but now he removes all doubt, uh, in our minds at least, as we read this text, as we read this story. And if you, we're listening by any chance, uh, I can't believe that you didn't see that and go, hey, I wouldn't have said that. And if you would, I, I, we probably don't like you. But nevertheless, I mean, it's just just right in your face. And it, it doesn't really match our culture. And it doesn't really match what we think of Jesus. And, and as we've talked about before, uh here's, here's the good news. I wouldn't have said it, but I'm not God. And, and that's the good news for you today. But nevertheless, um, so many times we kind of create the, the Jesus that we want. Uh, Robert Smith calls it the Christological idolatry, is what he calls it, where we kind of make up the way Jesus should act, the way he should respond. And that's what we worship, the way that we want Jesus to be. And then we, we worship our image of the way that we think Jesus is, the way we think he should be, as opposed to who he is. And so this text right here just kind of shatters that image. And uh, again, if we just if we don't read this in context, if we don't read this with the understanding of what's going on around and what, what the deeper meanings are in this text, then it, it's just a real hard pill to swallow. Uh, you know, uh, how many of you out there... Let's lighten it up for just a second. How many of you out there... I mean, used to be, I'm sure you're you're, you're not doing it right now, but uh, how many of you grew up being Van Halen fans? Raise your hand. Okay. Yeah. It would crack me up like there's this eight-year-old boy in the 830 service. I grew up. Well, you can't even spell Van Halen. Whatever. But, uh, you know, back when they when they really started to do their major, major tours uh, back in the late 70s and early 80s, they they were one of the first groups to do this this, this major production show on the roads where they'd have like eight, nine semi-trucks full of equipment. They just brought everything, the lights, the sound. It was just, it was mammoth. And uh, they had like 126 uh, pages of, of guidelines that they needed you to, to sign off on that you would agree to uh, before they'd do the concert. So they'd send these these guidelines, this kind of these instructions, so to speak, ahead and uh in the middle of it, one of the things that was there, it, it, they were to have two big bowls of M&M's uh, in their green room, their rest area. And it was not to have any brown M&M's in it. You know, and we look at that. I remember even hearing this and thinking, you know, what prima donnas, they got to have M&M's without brown M&M's in them. And uh, that's kind of all we most people heard. But there was a reason for that. <clears throat> and what was interesting is the reason they did that is... They kept, as they were going to some of these concerts and doing them, they would find that a lot of the preparations they'd sent ahead were not being done to specs or they weren't being done, period. So what they decided to do, somebody had the bright idea, hey, right in the middle of this, let's just put, uh, and we don't want any brown M&Ms in our M&M bowls. And so they put that in there. And what they found that was <clears throat> when they would go into their room and if those, those M&Ms had been removed, they said, usually everything had gone to specifications. Everything was right. But they said, without fail, when we would get one of those bowls and those brown M&Ms were still there, there would always be something else that was missing, something else that hadn't been done. You know, one time, uh, the stage wasn't to spec. So they said, we got on it, and while we were rehearsing, it started wobbling, and we realized there's no way they met the specifications. And so we had to, you know, go back and redo it and delay the concert, the whole deal, and uh, if we would have performed with what they again, they said it would have probably collapsed. We probably would have been hurt, and some of the people probably would have been killed. And we just learned that the people who paid attention to the details were ready. The people who had the brown M and M's removed, we'd go in and we would know right off whether uh, they had met whether they had read through all the instructions, they had paid attention to detail. And it was kind of a test, so to speak. You know, that's our life. And spiritually, we constantly go through test in life. And the question is not will they come, but how will we respond and how will we handle them? Let's jump into our text right here and uh, let's read this story and see what we can glean this morning. Uh, And Jesus starts here in Mark chapter 7, verse 26, and he got up and departed from the region of Tyre, in Sidon, and he entered a house that he did not want anyone to know, but he could not escape notice. So so what's he doing here? Well, first of all, he goes to Tyre and Southern. he's He's leaving his immediate area of where he's been ministering, and he basically leaves the Jewish culture and goes into the pagan culture at this point. Uh, he he kind of crosses the dividing line to where the vast majority uh, of this people group did not worship or profess Yahweh, and uh, they would not have known a lot about Christ. Now we know in earlier chapters when he was preaching that it says that people as far away as Tyre and Sidon came. So this is about a, a hundred and twenty miles, hundred miles or so from the Jerusalem area, and <clears throat> they have come even that far to hear him before, so they know about him. Uh, but it's not; it's certainly not the primary area in which he went to minister. As a matter of fact. He's only been ministering in the Jewish area at this point, And now he goes to this territory, and it seems to be, at least from the indication of the Scripture, because as we know, he's been trying to get away. Every time he tries to get away to pray, every time he tries to get away to eat and to rest, uh, there's crowds, there's multitudes that just kind of come around him and and don't enable him to do that. So now he leaves the area, and he goes into a, quote, pagan area, an area where most would not have practiced Judaism, not would worship Yahweh God, and he gets that area, surely he'll be able to rest there. Uh, and so he said he literally is going in this house, but someone does notice him. Now, uh, the interesting thing about Tyre and Saddam, particularly Tyre, is this is a very despised area by the Jews because they have fought against them, even in the Maccabean Revolt, uh, when some of the superpowers, so to speak, of the world were coming in. Tyre kind of joins in. They're all, they've always taken opportunity uh, to come against Israel uh, for most of history. They've been a sworn enemy. Matter of fact, Josephus, the the Jewish historian, said they are our most bitter enemies. So uh, they don't like each other. Uh, There's a cultural difference. There's certainly a religious difference. And uh, there's certainly in this this time and age, there's a great prejudice between the two groups. And uh, this is also where Jezebel is originally from now that's not enough she was the member queen jezebel uh, during first kings who tries to uh, completely demoralize and the uh, yahweh so to speak uh, the whole northern ten tribes and uh, and so there's a lot of reasons that people don't like tire and sidon or the jews don't like tire and sidon so he's entered the house there he didn't want anybody to know but he could not escape notice instead immediately after hearing about him A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit fell at his feet. So he's tried to hide, but somehow this woman finds out about him. Probably one of those who've heard Jesus preach said, I think that's Jesus. I see him coming this way. Maybe somebody has run on ahead. And this woman whose daughter has a demon in her who she can do nothing for hears. And she goes, you know what? I've heard the stories of Jesus. I know he is supposed to be the fulfillment of the Messiah, the prophecies. Uh, of the Jews, uh, she may have even known of the story uh, back in First Kings, when Elijah was. Uh, uh, it was a dr- time of drought, and um, he goes to this woman in Zarephath in this this same area, and says, uh, "Make me something to eat." And she said, "Look, I've only got just enough bread to feed my son and myself, and then we're going to eat it, and then we're going to die. In other words, there's we don't have anything after this." He said, "Well, make me some first. and so he does. Uh, The woman does do that for him, and then he supplies through God's miraculous power uh, enough bread and oil for her to live from that point forward. And so she's provided for. So that story could have easily been passed down in this area. She knows enough to know there's something about Jesus he, I know he can perform the miracles. I know he's the fulfillment of the prophecies. I've heard the stories, and I'm at the place where I want to come and ask him. And so it says that she literally she begs him. We know from Matthew chapter 15 that we read earlier when she when he came when she came before him and she begins to beg that he doesn't listen or at least he doesn't respond initially. He does not respond to her, and so she's in the posture of worship. That's literally the posture that she's in. She's begging before Jesus to heal her daughter. And uh, there's a little bit more as we go into this text that it's it's worthy for us to know. She's following and worshiping her feet. And now she's a Greek. What does that mean? That means she's not a Jew. All right. Uh, she is uh, not a part of the faith. She's Syrophoenician. She's not of the culture or the nationality. And uh, she kept asking him to drive the demon out of her daughter. And she's a woman. Well, what difference does that make? Well, it was an old uh, rabbi, rabbinic prayer that some rabbis prayed. And uh, Jesus never condoned it and probably was against it. Uh, but we know this was prayed uh, during this time of the culture. Uh, they would pray this. The rabbi would stand up and say, Dear Lord, thank you for making me a Jew and not a Gentile. Thank you for making me a free man and not a slave. And thank you for making me a man and not a woman. Okay? So at least two of these three, uh, at this point, at least two out of these three, she's out, okay? She's in, she's in bad shape. And so, here, here she is. She's a woman, she's a foreigner, not, not only is she a foreigner, not only is she an outsider, but she's of Tyre, the area that Jews probably despise the most during this time. And this is who she is. And so she's begging, Before Jesus' feet. And you gotta think, wow, I can't even believe that she's doing that. I mean, I mean, you, you think about that's some moxie right there. But here's the, here's the way to understand it. You've heard that, you probably heard this expression or this old saying before. There, there are cowards, there are heroes, and then there's parents. (laughs) You know what I mean? And this is her daughter. So, all rules are off. Doesn't matter where you are in that spectrum. This is your kid. You know, I, just to help you understand this a little bit, I, re, I remember a while back I was at home and I'm studying Saturday night, getting ready for Sunday morning. It's about 11:30 night, and I thought, "Okay, I'm, I'm going to go to bed." And so uh, I start to walk down our hallway, and and uh, I look over and I see something, and I see something's kind of slither, and I thought, "Okay, my kids have left. I mean, they, they got rubber snakes. That's what they do, you know." So I got a boy, you know what I mean? And so I see that, and I think, is that one of those? He moves, I'm going. I think that just moved, I think that rubber snake moved, and sure enough, he's real, and so he sees me, I see him, you know, and just so you know where I am, I'm, I'm not a snake person, okay, I don't like pick snakes up and go, ooh, aren't they, cute? I don't do all that junk, all right, but I'm not, I'm scared, I don't like run, hide. You know, I do like the motto a good snakes, a dead snake, but um, but I grew up in Louisiana, so I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't have, I've got a healthy respect and fear for snake. I don't pick them up, uh, I'm, I'm happy to kill one, uh, I don't just, you know, go out looking for snakes, that kind of deal. So I'm, I'm just kind of one of these average people when it comes to snake, okay? No phobias, but no endearment. And um, but I kind just say this, I am not dressed. For snake hunting at this point, or dealing with a, a snake. I don't have any socks or shoes on. And, uh, and so, um I, he's starting to move a little bit, and I'm thinking, I gotta do something. I can't just leave this snake in my house, and I, I don't want to run off to my room to get where I have a knife, or I have actually a sword in there. I, I, you know, I, I, I got, he's gonna be gone. So I go, oh. And I look over the side, and there's, we had left a baking tray out. Little baking tray, you know, about that big with a little muffin things coming out of it. And so I go, well, I got, and I'm thinking, I don't know if I want to do this or not. And I'm thinking, oh, he's starting to, so I run over there. Pam, but it's on carpet. And I hit him as hard as I can, hoping i kill him. And he goes, he's mad now, man. He didn't like that at all. And he's looking at me and he's all coiled up. And I'm going, great. I don't think I can try that again. And, um. So I'm thinking, what do I do, man? I, I just go to bed. Gee whiz, what do I do at this point? I can't get my neighbors. It's 11:30 at night, and so finally, I get I get all these chairs around, and it's just there's just a table in the middle. I got these chairs, and and while I'm doing that. He goes under the table, and it's one of these tables that goes like, and I can't see him in there. So I just put all the chairs around, and thinking that you know snakes they can't go over chairs or anything, and and I I, I block it off, and then I, I think, okay, God is. I, don't want to go in there and lift that table up. I mean, I've already made him mad. I am not snake-appareled ready. I, I don't want to do this. And I'm thinking, I'll just go to bed. And I was thinking, you know, and if it was just me, I'm telling you guys, I'd go to bed, I'd do this thing tomorrow. We'll have a snake hunt. I'll invite the boys over, and we'll see if we can find a snake. Uh, but then I got to thinking, and I'm not telling my wife, this is, there'll be no sleep tonight. And um, so... And then I go, my kids play in here all the time. And they crawl around, and they mess around here, and you know, just. And I'm not sure what it is yet. I mean, I'm, I was dazed anyway. I, I don't think he's poisonous. I know he's not a copperhead or rat, rattlesnake, but other than that, I don't. I don't know what he is. And I go, all right, I got to deal with this. So I, I run in and get my little sword, which I would actually made. I was worried about the kids. Getting into it. So I've like rubbed all the edges up. So it's really just like an iron rod. Okay. So I pull my iron rod out of the sheet there and I come over and, okay, now I got to lift this big heavy table up and there's a snake under there and he's already not happy with me. He's shown. And this is where I'm a parent. Okay. I would not do that on my own. Okay. I will not pick this table up with a snake under there, you know, with both hands because I can't, it's heavy enough. I can't pick it with one hand. And so I go, for my children, so I pull it up, and luckily he's all coiled up, you know, and he's ready, ready to strike. And I get the thing out, you know, and I go, I go away, and I finally mortally wound him, and I think he's going to die. And I go and I go, okay, I'm better now. And I said, you know, he'll he'll be dead. I think it's just the nerves. And so I go, I said, I'm just going to go pray and kind of calm myself down, and then I'll take this thing out of here. And so I go, I go pray and read my Bible for about 30 minutes, and I come back. I think he's. I'm oh, a great day in the morning. What is you, man? Uh, so I go through the garage and find a rake, and you know, do what I need to do and get 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 rid of him. And um, you know, here's here's the deal. I would never have done that. I'd never put myself in that situation. But for my children, that's where this woman is. It's my child. I don't care what all my neighbors think that I'm worshipping this rogue rabbi. I don't care that he's not responding right now. I don't care what I look like. It doesn't matter. I know this. My child has a need and he is the only one who can save her. I really believe this. I believe he has the power and the authority to do it. I've heard of what he's done for others. I've heard the stories. I know he's fulfilled. I've heard that he's fulfilled the prophecies of Messiah. I'm coming and I'm putting it all the line. And that's exactly what she's doing here. Though she's a woman, though she's a Greek, though she's Syrophoenician. And he said to her, and then, I mean, she's done all that. And then look how Jesus responds in verse 27. He said, allow the children to be satisfied first. So he doesn't say she can't come or that she, she won't be addressed. But he said, let her be satisfied First, there's an order here, and we see this in Scripture. And again, we don't necessarily like this in our 21st century America. But God had chose the nation of Israel. He blessed them so that they would be a light unto the Gentiles. That's the reason he did that. They're chosen people to be an instrument. Uh, into the nations so that they might know of Yahweh God. They've had the prophecies, they've had, they've been studying, they've been praying. Many Jews have been praying and anticipating the Messiah's coming. Uh, they've been fasting, they've been reading, they've been telling, they've been preaching, they've been waiting for the Messiah, and now he comes in. So Jesus said, you know, first of all, I'm here to respond to the Jews. To, to the children of Israel. There, there's going to be a day where I'm going to address you. And, but first, right here, I'm going to fill the responsibility of the prophecies that have come and that I have given. And so first, and, and it's interesting, he uses the word satisfy, which the Greek word right there actually uh, gives the connotation of abundance, of more than enough. And the only other two times we see this word used, that word satisfy, quasi is is first of all uh, in the feeding of the 5000 and then we'll see it in our next chapter chapter 8 the feeding of 4000 and Jesus uh, it, it tells us at the end of each of those passages after the sto- after Jesus has produced the food that they were satisfied there was more than enough there's plenty and so Jesus literally uses that same word that same terminology here and so because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs Oh, Jesus, what are you doing here? Why did you say that? (laughs) I was with you. And then you said, take it and throw it to the dogs. Now I've heard preachers try to make this sound better. Well, it wasn't a bad dog. It was a good dog. His little puppy. His little pet. And it was. He used the the diminutive of the word dog there. And this is talking about a a household pet, a a puppy. Uh, So he's not talking about a wild dog. But still, that's not good. I mean, we don't like it. He would say. said, you're a dog. I mean, like a puppy. I mean, we wouldn't take that as a compliment. You know, you wouldn't want your daughter called that under any circumstances. And so Jesus, though, uses this term. Now, we know Gentiles were referred to as dogs. That was a common uh, epithet, expression used for Gentiles. And so Jesus said, um, first of all, I need to take care of the lost sheep of Israel. I need to take care of the children of Israel. And then, he said, and when they're satisfied, then, um, you know, let me say this to you also. It's not right for me to take their food and cast it to the puppies. Whew. You know what most of us would have done at that point? Our 21st century. Well, I never, I'm not going to sit here and let you talk to me like that. I'm leaving. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's our natural mentality. And most people probably would have done that. Matter of fact, the disciples are saying, "Send her away. Just send her on. They they, they got no compassion at this point. She's bothering us." And I I always wanted Jesus to say, "She doesn't care about you. She's trying to get to me. What do you mean she's bothering you?" But she's begging for Jesus, and Jesus makes this statement, and she is unfazed. Doesn't stop her. He basically lets her know, look, you haven't been seeking my face. You haven't been praying. You haven't been asking Yahweh to come to send the Messiah. You've not been doing any of these things. And is it right for me to take what I, for those who've been waiting and anticipating and praying and seeking, and simply give it to you? Right now? And look at her response. By the way, that's a parable. It's a one-verse parable, and nobody's gotten any of the parables Jesus has done. They're all, they're all just kind of like, what? I mean, even disciples, what were you talking about? Why When do you put that out there? I mean, they're not getting them. And for, for the first time, we see somebody gets it when he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, to the puppies. But she replied to him, Lord, even the puppies, even the dogs under the table, eat the children's crumbs. Wow. She goes, you know what? You say I'm an outsider. I accept that. I don't deserve this. I accept it. There's nothing that I've done that I should receive any of your grace or any of your power. I accept this. I'm not going to cop an attitude. I'm not going to try to guilt you into this. I'm not going to try to bow up to you. I get it. I understand. I completely get it. I don't deserve it. I am totally... um, Undeserving of your grace and your mercy and your power. But Lord, even the puppies get crumbs from the children's table. Even the dogs. that You said you used that word satisfied. There's more than enough. And in a time where gleaning was one of the principal ways, and that word gleaning means people would take the leftovers or what was left over from the field. We know Ruth did that with Boaz. We know in Luke chapter 16 when Lazarus is trying to get the crumbs from the table. That was one of the ways the poor and who could not fend for themselves or feed themselves would often get their food. They'd get their morsels. There's an abundance of food and you can have the crumbs. You can have the leftovers. That's literally the word. You can, even, the, even the puppies get the leftovers. I'll just take a leftover. I know you're, you're more than enough. I know that you can heal anyone. I know that you have that power and that authority, and I, and I believe in who you are as much as I know, as much as I can understand. I, I know there's enough. And she gets it. I, I don't. We really don't know. I'm, I, I'm interjecting my thoughts here, but I'm wondering if Jesus is looking around and the disciples are going, "Lord, send her away." You want me to send her away? Yeah, send her away. And then when Jesus states that to her, they probably go, "Yeah." And he's looking at her and he goes, "You know." You know, I was sent here first to the lost sheep of Israel. And it's not really right for me to take what's meant for them and give it to you right now. And I wonder if he was saying that with a, with a compassionate smile. And she says, but Lord, even the puppies get the scraps from your table. He goes, you get it, don't you? And so Jesus says to her, beautiful verse. He said, then he told her, because of this reply, you may go. The demon's gone out of your daughter. And when she went back to her home, she found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. <clears throat> I love that part right there. Because Jesus basically says, Your reply, because you continued to wrestle with me, you were persistent and you continued. Matter of fact, that word, uh, matter of fact, most of the commentators make a reference at this point to Jacob. Remember the story of Jacob when Jacob wrestles with God all night, a theophany, uh, an image of God all night until he, um, at the end of the night, he, he, won't, he said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And so he says, okay, you've wrestled with me all night. He said, I'm changing your name from Jacob, which means trickster, one who deceives to Israel, to Israel. El means God, Israel means one who wrestles and struggles with God. One who continues to wrestle and struggle with God. That's what I'm changing your name to. You know, Islam means one who resigns to God. But Israel means one who struggles and wrestles with God. You know, when I really want to teach my children a principle, I can force them out and go, You! You will do this! You will respect your mother of your bottom that's one way that works for about 15 minutes and you know and i keep having to do that but when i can say you know let's talk about why do we want to respect mine why why is it inappropriate to talk certain ways and say certain things let's talk about that and how, how do you feel what do you think what do you think God commands us? What does it mean to obey your parents, to honor your parents? And how do you think God wants us to respond here and, and get deeper? And Let's wrestle with that a little bit. It's not comfortable. It's not like, do we have to talk about this? Yeah, you've got to talk about this. So we talk about it and wrestle through to learn. And I think Jesus was doing the same thing. Remember, there are, there are four different entities. There's four different uh, people who are listening at this point. First of all, there's the woman. And she's gleaning. She's learning. Remember, two, uh, there are the disciples. They're seeing how Jesus is handling this. Number three, there's the crowd. Number four, there's us. All those who read this passage. And so Jesus is giving us this opportunity to have an insight. And we see the insight is this, the spirit, the woman who passed the test. Matter of fact, let me give you some practical examples of the test that she's just gone through. And I'll even throw in a couple more for, for fun. First of all, there's the silence test. When she first comes to Jesus in chapter 15 of the Gospel of Matthew, the Bible says Jesus doesn't respond to her. She's kinda, he kind of ignores her. Have you ever felt like Jesus was ignoring you? you ever felt like God wasn't listening to you? You're crying out, but you don't feel Him or sense Him. It's silent. You've heard me quote St. John of the cross. He calls it the dark night of the soul. When God starts to break us of relying on the feeling, the candy feeling, of God, And he wants us to just worship him because of who he is. So she experiences the silence. And if you're a Christian long enough, you will too. Number two, uh, then there's the embarrassment test, so to speak. The pride test. Before all these people, these are my friends. Everybody knows me and I'm begging. And what if he says no and then he's calling me dog? I mean, I'm in, I would be embarrassed. I, I don't know if I'm, I'm just not going to do that. I'm just not gonna do that. I'm not willing to. And the truth of it is if we're come before Christ, if we're gonna to come to Him and experience salvation and grace and forgiveness, we've gotta humble ourselves to that point. Till we recognize I don't deserve it, I don't earn it. God can say or do anything he wants, it may not make sense, but I still humbly recognize who he is. And the only thing I can do is ask for his mercy, not based on any merits that I have or any rights that I have, but on who he is. And we just have to get over that whole embarrassment thing. So many times people go, well, "I would, well, you know, I just don't do, I just, I just don't kneel, I just don't like to be humbled." And well, you don't get to come to Christ. Bob's, the Bible says, "God resists the proud, but he, come, he giveth grace to the humble." If we don't humble ourselves, we don't find salvation. Period. We don't like that, but that's just a harsh reality. Recognizing our sin and recognize His perfection. And there's the endurance test. That she goes through. He's silent. He's basically embarrassed her. And she just keeps on. But, but I'm not going to give up. I will not quit. I'm going to endure. I'm going to keep on because I know that there's no other hope but in Christ. This is my only hope. This is my only possibility. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there today. Maybe you're in that endurance point where... Just keep praying where God is working and growing you through endurance. You know, I've learned this speaking of children. My son was here last night. He appreciated all these stories about him. But um, I've learned this. You know, it's getting that season where we buy gifts and things. And my kids, you know, I, your, your kids are probably not like this. They ask for everything. I want this. I want that. Let's see this on TV, this in the paper, this in the magazine, this next door, this down the street. Everybody's got something. You know what I've learned? You just don't even listen the first two or three times. Cause they, they just say, a, they give me a hundred different things. What I've learned is, until you ask me about six times, you're not even serious. Okay? First of all, is, is this even healthy and something we would ever want you to have? Okay? If it is, I need to hear it, and I'm not telling them this, by the way. This is for you. Um, I need to hear about six times. And I need to hear it not like six times in a row. I want this, I want this. I need to hear it over a period of time. You know what I mean? Like, I need some time, like a couple of months to go by, and you're saying the same thing. Then I know you're serious about this. This is really a, a true uh, desire of your heart. And, and I'm probably going to try to do it if it's affordable, and again, if it's something we would like for you to have. But not just once, not just a couple of times, not just a day, but persistence. Let me see some endurance from you here. I think we're a lot of times the same way. God's never promised he's going to give us everything we want. Because God knows what we need. And he's trying to create us into his image, not into our greed image. But even in that, some of the blessings that God wants to give, he wants to see us endure, to continue as he refines us and defines us. So he continues here. And I'm, I'm just going to tell you the, the next story. I'm not going to read it to you. But the next story, he, uh, he, he heals her or heals her daughter and tells her to just go. Just the word. And she's And she's healed. And then if you read down the rest of the text, then he comes before this guy who's deaf and mute. And uh, he can't hear or speak. And um, somebody apparently brings him to Jesus. He brings him to him, and and Jesus recognizes him. He has compassion. He pulls him out of the crowd. And then Jesus goes through this elaborate process that we don't see anywhere else. I mean, Jesus has just spoken the word, and the, guy's healed, and the and the girl's healed. Now Jesus takes this guy, you know, he spits his hand, makes a spill, puts his fingers in his ears, uh, does a sigh, uh, says, which means be opened. He goes through this elaborate process. We don't see Jesus doing this hardly ever in, in any other instance. But for some reason, he does that. And you look at that text, and you go, why did Jesus do all that? All the way he just said the word running to go, he healed. He's done that. He's been healed. But with this individual, he doesn't. Well, You know, one of the reasons I think this is kind of a love, compassion, act of compassion on Jesus' part, because if you remember, if you think about this logically, this guy can't hear, can't speak. He doesn't know what Jesus has been preaching. He doesn't know who Jesus, the message of who Jesus has been. He's not been hearing this. He's not been experiencing. So he's somebody has pointed him that way, and they probably had rudimentary sign language at best. And so what is Jesus doing here? I think, for one thing, Jesus is exercising sign language to, to a degree. He's giving him personal touch. And, and we know from uh, other rabbinical writings that one of the ways that they would, the rabbis would attempt to heal is they would go through part of this process, and, uh, and then they'd make the pronouncement. And so it's something the man probably recognizes. Hey, I'm going through the process of healing He's going to heal me. Because he can't can't hear, remember? He can't understand what Jesus is saying. And so he goes through that process. Jesus touches him. And forever he will have this image in his mind. He will remember the day and time. Not that someone spoke and they told me it was Jesus. And I don't know. I got healed. But I don't don't really know. I didn't hear. I wasn't a part of the process. Jesus allows him to be a part of it. To sense it. To feel it. To experience it. He's pulled out of the crowd. One on one. It's that compassion test, that love test, for someone who did nothing for Christ, but whom Christ goes the extra mile to make him feel included, to make him feel valued, to let him remember this experience for the rest of his life. And then here's the last test. This isn't in there. I'm giving you this one free, okay? It's the prosperity test. And some of you are going, oh, I'd like to be in that one. (laughs) The prosperity test. What do I mean by that? I simply mean this, that things are just going well in your life. Things are good. Uh you're able to meet you're able to pay your bills. Uh your family's not in a, a desperate or difficult situation. Things are going well right now. And a lot of us that would be where we are. And I would say that is the time that for a lot of us it's most difficult to really grow and glean from Christ. Because we think, Yeah, I did all that and I'm good and things go well. I've worked hard, I got myself in this position, and it's good. We want to just veg out and chill out. And it's often the prosperity test that it's most difficult for us to recognize our state and recognize who He is and really worship and seek Him when things are going well. There's three things that I think we need to be constantly doing. When these three things aren't happening, we find ourselves in that lazy, lackadaisical spot, that spot where we're existing, where God is not really using us, where we're really not making an impact and we're just existing. And there are three things I think that really help us to prevent from doing it. Number one is this, gratitude. Gratitude. Be in a conscious spirit of thanksgiving for what God has done, for what He will do, and for what He's doing in your life right now. Being thankful. Not talking about, all the time he's talking about, look what I've done. Look, you know, I've worked hard. I've done this. But At the end of the day, every good gift comes from the Father of it's a gift from God. And recognize that and express that verbally and in prayer. Number two, giving. We don't like to talk about that a lot of times. When you know, we, A lot of times we have this mindset, you know, when I get to a certain place, then I'm going to give. Then I'll give. And then, I, God, I'll really help you out. Can I tell you, God doesn't really need you to help Him out. That's the truth of it. Giving is what He's doing in you. It's not what you're doing for Him. It's what he's doing through. It's what he's asked because he's trying to mold you and create you into his image. And when we skip that process, we say, I'm, I'm just not going to give. There are other things I'll do, but I'm just not going to do that. We you know what we become. We're not the woman. God doesn't do great things for us. He doesn't. We don't see the miracles happen because we go, I'm not doing that. I got some. Pro- you know, I got other things. I'm just not going to do that because I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going on. You know, I was. Visiting a guy the other day in a retirement center, and we were talking, and start talking about faith, about problem of the gospel. Oh yeah, yeah. said, so, would you, you have a church you're part of? Have you been? No. When I was 33. I got sideways with a deacon. And he said this, and I said that, and he did that, and I made a problem. I'm not ever going back again. mad! I'm thinking, what are you 14? Grow up. I didn't say that, but I'm just thinking to myself. So for 50 years, you've just been bitter about this. Who do you think has lost on this? And I can just tell he's still. He's still where he was before. He's not grown. God has not used him. He's sitting there existing, but he's still mad about what some deacon said who's probably dead in a grave. And Satan's going, There you go, buddy. Good job. Good job. Live a life of bitterness. Hate yourself. Hate your life. Hate everybody else. Good job. Jesus is saying, until you humble yourself, I can't heal you. I'm not going to heal you. Giving is humbling. Now, after you do it for a while, it's empowering. But when we first start, it's another one of those things we have to give up. Number three is go. First statement of the Great Commission is go. Now, that may be go to another country, go to another area. But more often, you know what it is? It's go across the hall, go across the street. Go next to the person sitting to you in church. Look for the opportunities to share of the goodness of God and to minister. To go of the grace and the goodness of the gospel. Again, the gospel is this. We're more wretched and depraved and worse than we ever thought. But the good news is we're more loved and accepted and received when we we transfer our faith to Christ than we could have ever imagined. We become the children. We're not just here trying to get the crumbs we become the children. We're at the table and we're receiving the the plenty. That didn't mean there aren't testing times in our life. And the question is not whether you will have tests, but how will you handle them when they come. Um, James McDonald talks about when he was uh, younger, when he played basketball. He said, I, I, I messed my ankle up pretty good, he said, but I continued to play. And uh, he said, "I learned this. He said that, uh, you know, often I would I would twist it or tweak it again. And and what I learned is if I would come and put my ankle, I, I'd get a um kind of a trash can size, uh, or excuse me, a small trash can size of water and ice and just get in there. It was freezing. And if I did one minute, he said it, it, it would help. If I could keep it in there one minute, it was excruciatingly painful, but it would it would help. He said if I did two minutes, it would cut my recovery time in half." He said, if I could stay three minutes, he goes, then I would, um, he said, usually the, you know, usually the next day uh, I would feel better. And if I could do four minutes, he goes, I could literally walk and be fine the next day. He said, just from, because I tweaked it so many time and I understood it. He said, and it was really a test. He said, and, and, and every minute was just excruciating. I would think I can't go on. But if I would let the process be completed the next day, I would be walking. The swelling would be gone, the inflammation would be gone, the pain would be gone. But it all had to do with how much time I was willing to spend in the ice cold water. It's all had to do with how much pain I was willing to receive. How much lack of comfort I was willing to withstand. Hey, God only tests to grow us, to develop, to mature us. And we can say no or we can say, God, this is not I'm not signing up for this, I'm not looking for this, but I will trust you with my life. Here I am, Lord. Use me.